0: I left Brazil, my mother said to me, Roberto, I'm going to leave your room the way it is. If things don't work out, you just come back home. That was my drive.
1: Welcome to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. This week, we're going back a few decades to speak to a driver some of you may have heard of and some of you may not, but whose F1 story is both inspiring and humbling and at times incredibly frustrating. His day of days came at the 1990 Japanese Grand Prix. He finished second in that race behind his friend, mentor and Benetton teammate, Nelson Piquet. The man I'm talking about is Brazilian super sub Roberto Moreno. Suzuka 90 was Roberto's first race for Benetton, and the only podium of his Formula 1 career. He'd been drafted in to replace the injured Alessandro Nannini, hence the nickname, Super Sub. And he would race for the team for most of 1991 as well, until, that is, one Michael Schumacher arrived on the scene and replaced him from the Italian Grand Prix onwards. But Roberto's untimely exit from Benetton shouldn't detract from what he achieved in his racing career, because it was a career that happened against all odds. He arrived in Europe from Brazil with no money, not a cent, and yet he managed to climb the racing ladder on talent alone. He was Formula 3000 champion and got test roles with Colin Chapman's Lotus and with Ferrari, the latter, as they were developing their iconic semi-automatic gearbox in the late 80s. When it came to racing, though, the bulk of Roberto's machinery was second-rate. Aside from Benetton, he drove for F1 minnows, AGS, Coloni, Eurobrun, Andrea Moda and 40. The fact that Roberto managed to qualify the Andrea Moda for the 1992 Monaco Grand Prix was little short of miraculous. What you're about to hear is one of the most interesting and emotional conversations we've had on Beyond the Grid. Roberto is incredibly candid and he's living proof that perseverance pays off. I hope you enjoy our conversation, Roberto. How fantastic to see you! It really is. Um, where in the world are you, first of all?
0: <laughs> I'm in Florida. When I came, when Formula One was done for me, I remember uh, IndyCars was a great thing I'd done in the past to raise some money to go back to Formula One. So I thought, well, I'll well, take i I'll take a, I'll take, um, a go, and um, I came to Florida to do IndyCars. cars, and my girls grew up here. I have two girls, and uh, you, I had to stay because they grew up in this area. This is this is home. So here I am because of my grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> now, Roberto,
1: when I think of your. Formula One career, the first thing that comes to mind is that podium at Suzuka in 1990. When you think of your Formula One career, what's the first thing that comes to mind?
0: Um, qualifying um, the AGS car in um, Japan in 1987. That is. That was uh, a hierarchical scenario for me. Qualifying that piece of shit car uh, which was, at uh, let's say, three to four seconds slower than the last car the first time I drove in Paul Ricard. And uh, we made the setup with springs and shocks better. And they took those to, I believe it was uh, Spain or Portugal. This was Friday before the Grand Prix. Pascal Fabry had not qualified. And they took the shocks and springs that I've done in uh, Paul Ricard on that Friday. And they qualified on Saturday, so for me, this was—it's it's what it comes to mind. That is the first thing.
1: Seventy-five races, that podium in Japan, fifteen points finishes, and it's—and it's that qualifying session in the AGS at Suzuka for in eighty-seven. Sure, because
0: yeah. you, you got to keep in mind that I had that situation in my career. It was about making a career, finding money to survive in Europe. And finding a drive. So I had two challenges in my life. And the first one came, I, I raised money being a test driver for Lotus in 81, 2, and 3. They paid me 10,000 pounds just to be in Europe. I haven't done much running as a race car driver for them. I did some straight line speed things at Snatterton, fuel tank uh, pickup scenarios. So suddenly, Peter will call me up and say, oh, you might need to drive a Zonvoort. Of course, I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't physically ready for it. And they throw me in that bucket. So I fell, of course, and I couldn't turn the steering wheel, basically. Elio the just followed me and say, oh, Roberto, you quick everywhere. But the last corner, I say, Elio, I can't physically turn the steering wheel. I've got to back off like a motorbike. I've got to back off to be able to turn. Anyway, that's, that's um,
1: fascinating in itself. So so just a bit of background for people who don't know. We're talking about uh, Zanvoort 1982. You're parachuted into Nigel Mansell's car, who is injured. You've done very little mileage in the car, except that straight line running at Snetterton you've just talked about.
0: Well, I did a bit more. I did a couple of runs, but nothing that, okay, let's go and get top speed in this car. Mm. The time we went to uh, Paul Ricard to do a, a test, a stone hit the radiator and the water went straight into the tire. So uh, that was the end of my practice there. And that was a long way before that Zandvoort thing. So I wasn't physically ready for a Formula One car in those days. And if you remember, that Nigel Mansell was very strong. So all the steering wheel and the uh, pinion on the rack was for his um, fitness. Yeah. And I was just a weak little guy, you know? So anyway, that destroyed my career. Nobody wanted to know about me anymore in Formula One. So I had to go and find money. If it wasn't for my friends like Greg silo Peewee, and Nelson that helped me a couple of times to get out of the shit, I would not have a career. So my friends kept me going everywhere in the world. I somehow God put a friend in front of me to do the next step that I had to do. And that was just to survive in life. Anyway, I had to do a tour around the world. I eventually got to IndyCars in 85, 86, made some good money, and I was ready to come back to Europe. And I took a a break. I said, I'm not going to go to IndyCars now, which I had a, a career, a secure career in it. And I said, no, if I don't go back to Europe now, that was at the end of 86, and Gary Anderson was my engineer in IndyCars. And I said, Roberto, are you fucking crazy? You, you're gonna leave your career here for to try to race Formula One? Say, well, if I don't do that now, I will never do it. So we set up for um Japan. And luckily, Nigel Manso did not race right. he, and he had i got accident. on the grid yep.
1: he had his accident in yeah. qualifying you're right
0: yeah and i got on the grid and then in australia the next race we qualified well we put i think two cars behind us which was amazing for that car and we we finished um six and we made a point for the championship yeah. Yeah.
1: yours so and the team's first that point
0: ags right it was like you know i was 30 well i was 28 years old i believe It was 87. Yeah, I was 28 years old. And that was my first break in Formula 1 after giving up a career, a definitely career in America, in IndyCars for that. So that moment is crucial in my my mind.
1: And and did it make it all worthwhile, giving up the career in IndyCar to get that point in Adelaide in 87? For me,
0: the pleasure I have inside of me... (laughs) Only I can um, describe it. Yeah. It's like I'm a successful person inside of me because I've achieved every challenge I've chased. You know, uh, surviving Europe, uh, in England, and uh, so, so many friends helped me throughout. Being able to get to the top in every formula that I got involved, other than um, Le Mans, because I hated the long-distance races, basically and i've achieved everything without money and that sensation of achievement goes with you forever and it's fantastic
1: now roberto tell me about this f1 at all costs attitude that you had because you were born in rio de janeiro you then uh your family moved to brasilia and tell me if i'm wrong but your first love was motorbikes so where did this obsession with formula one come from
0: well there's not an obsession with formula one it's achievement in life you know you set a goal that's high enough for you to say okay we can do this it wasn't just formula one it was making a career without anything, without any preparation, without any study, just by going and do it. Hmm. You know, uh, what happened was in, back in, um, in 1971, my father moved to Brasilia, which was a new town, and uh, it was built for half a million people. There was only about 70,000 people when we got there. So the roads were built before the buildings. So there was no cross junctions. And there was no traffic lights. So it was like a racetrack in itself, Brazilian. Um, it was only... The, the, and, the and no police And no policemen either. <laughs> yeah. So there was only the top people there. So police would not chase us. We could do whatever we wanted. And I used to drive my father's car when I was 13. You know, my friend would take the keys. He had the license. And then he would give the car to me around the corner and off we go racing around Brasilia. Anyway, this shop, and then I bought a motorbike in this shop, it was a tuning shop that sold motorbikes, carts, and tuned cars. Alex Ribeiro was the owner with three other friends. It was just a fun thing for them to do. I used to take the motorbike apart, and then shit, sometimes I couldn't put it back together. So I used to go to the shop and say, well, can you help me? And then the motorbike mechanic would help me. And then I'll go the next day, he would help me again. And then he saw my interest. I was about 12 years old. He saw my interest. And I was just a very little guy. I'm a little now, but I I grew up when I was 17 only. He used to tell me everything to the point that I took his job. And then he went into the car tuning. And that guy was Nelson Piquet. And Nelson, um, we become like, brothers, you know, he was seven years older than me, but he he used to take me under his arm everywhere. I remember one day he was coming out of this, uh, the the shop was called Camber. And um, in that shop, Alex Ribeiro came out of it, Nelson and myself. And almost Alex Ribeiro's brother got to Formula One. He could have got to if he continued. So from one shop in Brazil, Three guys got the Formula One. What an amazing
1: story. What an amazing story.
0: So that's how I I basically followed Nelson. And I saw what he did. And Nelson was the guy that got me involved in technical stuff. He said, Roberto, for you to survive, you need to become technical because teams need you to set their car up. And then they can – you don't have sponsors, so they can probably – uh, pay for your ride. And that's how I did all the way through my career. If it wasn't my ability that Nelson helped me to get, he's setting up cars. I would not have got to Formula One.
1: Was Nelson like an older brother to you?
0: Yes, very much so. And is he still that person today? Yes, I see him that way. Very much so. When I ne- Nelson, when I needed him, I could pick up the phone and say, look, I'm in the shit. Can you get me out of this shit? I never had to. Uh, he, at the end, it, he never had to, but a couple of times I actually picked up the phone. Yeah, like when I did my three thousand thing, he was the one behind the uh, the financial side of it. If I had not money to pay,
1: Well, in nineteen eighty eight when you won the Formula Three Thousand Championship, he
0: would he was your
1: backer effectively.
0: Had yeah, you well, he I borrowed a car from agent from Rick Gordon at Reynard Cars. I actually bought a car because they would not lend it to me. I said, okay, I'll buy it, but I'll pay at the end of the year. He said, how are you going to do that? I said, well, I will sell your car at the end of the year. I'll give you the money. How does that sound? So said, oh, Robert, you're going to have to uh, guarantee it. And I called Nelson and said, look, that's my situation. He said, what about if you don't sell the car? I said, Nelson, I will... Work on your boat forever if necessary until we settle this bill. I say, okay, give the phone to this guy. So I gave the phone to Rick Gordon, In two minutes. He said, okay, you can take the car. I say, Rick, one more thing. Let's say I win the championship, you're gonna sell a lot of cars, aren't you? I say, yeah. I said, okay, can I bring the car back if I win the championship and no money? He said, Well, you son of a bitch. Yeah, if you can do that, you I don't think you'll be able to because you're starting so late in two weeks. You have the first race. You haven't even driven the car yet. And my drivers, Johnny Herbert and everybody else are testing the car since September and they're the fastest guys around. So you're going to have a hard time beating them. So, well, I'll give it a go anyhow. And uh, Gary Anderson helped me uh, with the team that uh, they had it together, but they didn't have a driver. And he convinced the owner, Ron Salt, to pay for three races in the hope that if I did well, he would find a driver that paid to join the team. So I had a borrowed car. I went to Nicholson-Mike-Lavion engine. I I borrowed the engine. I mean, I bought a car and Nicholson uh, lent me an engine. Um, And I had three races. We won the third race, which was pole. We beat Al-Aziz there. And I was sad on the, on the, on, on, on the podium. And um, I was walking back to the transport and I was thinking, shit, that was my last race. That's it. Done. I'm going to have to sell this car now, give the engine back to uh, John Nick, and I'm um, going to have to find something else to do in life. And then the owner of the team tapped my back and said, Roberto, look at the check I got for first place. You know, the next race is Silverstone. <laughs> Would you like to do it?
1: Oh, God, amazing memories, yeah. Roberto, aren't they?
0: That, that's one of the, you, you don't imagine the, the sensation I had when he was telling me that.
1: I can imagine.
0: shit well sure. And then we won won Silverstone, and we got another check. (laughs) Then we said, okay, let's go to Monza. Sure, why not? We got to Monza, we won the race. I sprayed the champagne on the podium, and the cook got to his hand, believe it or not, from the top. Anyway, I was spraying the champagne. I I came down, spraying the champagne around them, and then this guy taps my back. And I almost sprayed him. I almost. And this guy was really well dressed on the Italian way. And uh, it was a, a guy with his wife next to him. And he, he presented me a card. I say, would you please call this number? My boss would love to talk to you. So I grabbed the card, put it in my pocket, and continued spraying my friends. <laughs> I had no clue who this guy was. Okay,
1: <laughs> but did you ring? Did you ring, Roberta? Did you ring? That Hang number? on.
0: So now my 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 daughter was born. My wife came to England. Gary Anderson found me a friend's place to stay in Kings Bromley, and there we were in England, um, a family um, with no, no bloody money <laughs> and with hopes to win the championship. So she said, oh, I almost washed your suit. And I saw this card just as well. Would you like it? So I picked up the card. There was a name and a phone number in Italy. And that was it. So I was calling Peewee in Australia. was telling him all about Monza. And he knows Pedrão as well. So we're talking about that. And then suddenly I said, Peewee, do you know this guy, Marco Piccinini? He said, no. I said, well, it's a number in Italy. And uh, as I was talking and looking on the cards, the sun came out from the clouds. <sighs> and there was a horse embossed on that card, which the sun showed me between the clouds. Wow. Anyway, of I said, there's a horse here. A prancing horse. He said, well, maybe you should call that number. <laughs> quick yeah anyway calling that number was a long story again I went to see Marco and Ricard on the test I had to borrow the air ticket to go there because my wife said look you don't even have money to take your daughter to uh, the exams and you are gonna go to south of France say well so I called Bob Warren another friend that said Roberto if you don't get that job the ticket's on me go and then I found a ride at the airport from a Bravo mechanic that gave me a lift to Paul Ricard at Marseille Airport. Got there, Marco Piccinini said, Oh, Roberto, fantastic to meet you. Can you meet me in Monaco in a couple of days? Because I'm so bloody busy here. I said, Okay, no problem. You know, where is Monaco? <laughs> anyway, Nelson said,
1: Roberto, can we just give some background here as to who Marco Piccinini was at that time? I mean, he was a, a big cheese at Ferrari, but can you remember what his job title was at the time?
0: He was everything at Ferrari after Enzo Ferrari. Yeah. That's what that's who he was at the
1: time. That's how you'd sum it up. He was everything. Okay.
0: Anyway, I said, okay, Marco, no problem. So Nelson said, Roberto. And he saw me, they said, what are you bloody doing here? So I explained to him the whole scenario. I said, also, I just have to sell that car so I don't have to pay that money to you. And anyway, I'm almost winning the championship. And I have a secret that I'll tell you later, which was about returning the car without payment, but I didn't tell him that. So I went to Monaco, so Marco in this big apartment. He had a butler in, 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 in this apartment in Monaco. The first thing he said to me, oh, we want you to test drive for us for three years. That hit me like a rock in the face. My stomach, I felt sick. Because I remembered what Peter Wood did to me in Lotus, putting me in that scenario and destroyed my career for five years and destroyed all the opportunities I might have had in, in Formula One. And I said, no, no, sorry. I...
1: I- Really? You said no?
0: Yes. I said, uh, well, I couldn't say anything. I lost words, actually. And I was shaking and I, I couldn't say a thing. And then Marco said, come down, Roberto, come down. And they got me some uh, chamomile tea and they got me some water. And uh, after 10, 15 minutes, my heart rate was down. And he said, OK, please explain to me. I said, Marco, back in the 80s, I had to do this thing with Lotus. McLaren, halfway in that test drive situation for three years, offered me a full-time drive for two years. And Colin Chapman promised me I was going to race for him. So I turned the McLaren drive down, which I think the Cesaris got or something, or was the drive that he had at the time. Um, I remember having a meeting uh, at Marlborough in London, with that fellow that worked for, um, um, McNally, Pat McNally. I worked, I, I had a meeting. Yeah. And he put me a contract in front of me. He said, look, we'll deal with Colin Chapman. leave it to us. I said, no, I need to go and talk to Colin. So I went there. He said, oh, no, you're going to drive for us. Elios going to leave the team. You're going to drive for us. Of course he won that race. He got the Rena- Renault engine and he signed again. And I was out of a drive and then Peter Wu had put me into that situation in 82. And I, uh, that old scenario came to my mind and I was speechless. I couldn't say a thing and I was, I, I stood up. I said, Marco, thank you, but no thank you. And he said, Shh, you can't just leave like that. And then he shouted at me, he said, sit down and explain. And then I explained to him, "Ah, oh, we not, Lotus? You're talking about Ferrari. Say, Marco, I will do anything for you this year to raise money so I can get to Formula One next year. That's all. I'm out of money. I need money. I will be a bitch for you if necessary to have money to raise, uh, to raise Formula One next year. Oh, I see. So he went on the phone for half an hour, come back, say, okay, you're gonna drive this year for us, do the semi-automatic gearbox development because we need that to work on the normal aspirated car. And um, you're gonna do that until March. And then you're done. I said, no, March, I won't find anything to drive. I need some, I can do until December. So off he goes again on the phone for half an hour, comes back. I say, okay, we'll fix it for you. I say, okay, you're going to test for us until March because we need you in, until the, before the first race. I said, look, no, Mark. I said, listen first, let me finish. We're going to find you a team to race Formula One next year. I say, Yeah. What team? Say, we don't know yet. That idea just came about. But we will. Say, a real Formula One team? Say, yeah, don't worry. We're Ferrari. Okay. But we want one more thing. We want you to become the Ferrari driver for the third year. I relaxed then. I say, how much are you going to pay me? <laughs> 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 and they say, well, I never thought you were going to say that. I said, okay. Um, So he paid me half a million dollars to become a test driver for Ferrari, if I remember correct.
1: Roberto, was that the biggest paycheck you'd had in your career at that point?
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, that's a a huge sum of money.
0: In America, I made like um, $350,000 per year in 85, 86. And what I did is I always saved money. So I kept using the money slowly. Just to survive, you know. Yeah. Anyway, that's how I was, was able to make it. And and I say, Marco, why do you want me? I say, well, we heard things about you, about technical stuff that we haven't heard from any drivers other than the real Formula One drivers at the time. So we really believe you can help us. So okay. And that was uh, John Barnard behind it all. The second year, he paid me half a million dollars to become a Formula One driver in a junior team to be announced, which was Colony eventually. And uh, a million dollars to become a Ferrari Formula One driver for the third year. So that would be 89. This was 88. It would be 89 Colony. Ninety um, Ferrari. Where, where
1: do I sign? I would imagine. Well, were-
0: I signed. I signed. I, I, I signed a deal with uh, this uh, this uh, company, and they did everything for me. I became a real driver from their own. It, it reminded me of the days I was in America, and everything started to happen. That Ferrari, it was a fantastic car. John Barnard did a great job. Gordon Kimball was his man at Ferrari to develop that gearbox and engine. The first problem we had was uh, the alternator was overheating. Joan did not want any uh, air scoops into that bodywork. So it was a bit of a, a situation to convince him to do that. And then once we'd done that, the generator was cool and it uh, started start working. And then once we fixed the generator or the alternator or put a little scoop, so there were just little problems which got fixed uh, in 55 days and they went racing and won the first race in Brazil.
1: Of course they did with Mansell uh, in, in, in Rio. And did you take a lot of pleasure from that victory because um, of all the hard work you put in?
0: Um, well, it wasn't just my job. You know, I only done the first bit. Was, was to get that gearbox going, but I was pleased to see that it survived the full race, even with all the little issues that we had. So um, I was very pleased with it. They had a steering wheel situation. They, they came loose and they had to change the steering wheel in a pit stop. By the way, I have the very first ever paddle shifter that Formula One ever had in my house. Well, the, the actual paddles on the, on no, the steering wheel? the steering wheel, wheel itself, is all here. Because <laughs> they had to give me something after that, so I told yeah.
1: them. Oh, Roberto, what a great story. Did you enjoy the whole experience in Maranello? Did you enjoy putting on the overalls and being a Ferrari driver?
0: I never thought about being a Ferrari driver. I just loved the attention that I got by being a test driver. Anything I say, they would take seriously, like Gary Anson always did, like Turanak always did, you know, like Patrick had. So every time I say something, it would be taken in with a lot of um, attention. That was my pleasure, yeah, believe okay. it or not. I get and, pleasure from the things that I achieve rather than the the real formula one goal itself you know getting to benetton when i was 31 years old and having my first good break in formula one or half a decent break i should say it's an achievement that i carry with me and the pleasure it's the same as when my daughters were born
1: that powerful but do you think the work you did at ferrari on that semi-auto box was one of the reasons John Barnard chose you to replace Alessandro Nannini after his helicopter accident in 1990?
0: One of the reasons. I also made a call for him on that morning because I was in England chasing a job for next year. And I called kaomotov uh, uh, <clears throat> from Honda, who always asked me to call him to tell me what I was doing forever. I used to call his wife in Japan and tell her about my uh, development in Japan in Formula 2. And so I called Karl Motov, the the president of Honda. I called Ron Toranak. I called Gary Anderson. And I called um, John Barnard. This is all in the same day? Same day. 10 o'clock in the morning, more or less, or between 10 and 11 in the morning, because I spent some time on the phone there. And I was just telling them, you know, I'm here again, trying to find a job for next year. Brabant has a seat. I'm going to see Herbie Blash, but he only can see me at 5 o'clock for 10 minutes after telling me to come over here. So I had to kill time. And I start calling all my friends. And, of course, they're all engineers. And the people, that always help me with ideas. And those things are priceless for me. You know, having the respect of Gary Anderson and people like that, Patrick Head and Ron Tornak, and John Barnard, Gordon Kimble, it's what moves me, you know? Because I started as a motorcycle mechanic. So this is what really moves me. And regardless of age, I got to a good break. (laughs) <laughs> made the best out of it.
1: <laughs> Wait, you, you certainly did. And Roberto, can you tell us, so you obviously picked up the telephone, having spoken to Kawamoto-san and all these other people. Mm-hmm. John Barnard. Hi, John. It's Roberto. What happened next?
0: Well, he knew my accent straight away. He said, what the fuck are you doing? I said, oh, I'm in Israel. <laughs> I said, what are you doing? I said, I'm looking for a job. Again, Roberto? I say, said, oh, John, it's the story of my life. Said Roberto, you know what? Shit. Um, the team already left. is to, left to Japan. It was Friday, bef- a week before the Japanese Grand Prix. They left to Japan already. Most of the team. I need one of my drivers to be here on a mock-up for next year's car. Since you are gonna come to Brava, which is not far away from Godomy. I need you to sit on the car and see if the steering wheel position, the gear shift position, and the gauges and the switches are on the right place. Would you mind doing that for me? I say, Ron, or John, if you buy me a cup of tea and get me some digestive uh, milk chocolate biscuits, I will be there in a heartbeat. (laughs) He said, don't worry, it will be bored for you waiting for you to arrive. This is 10 o'clock in the morning, more or less. Of course, a lot of things happened in that day that I did not know. So I did my meeting with Herbie Plesch. Unfortunately, it was a bit of a waste of time for the drive for the following year, but Herbie always respect me a lot. He gave me his time. We had a good chat, saw the factory. I always loved to go to Brabant. I then got a phone call at Robin, because you know, in those days there were no cell phones, especially for a poor guy like me. <laughs> anyway, it was his secretary. He, she wanted to make sure I was going to make it to Godomie. So, yeah, I'll be there in half an hour. Okay, Joe is waiting for you. He must speak to you. So, okay. So, got to, go to me, packed the car. I opened the door. Joe Barnard is next to it. I said, Joe? What are you doing here? Oh, I saw you coming in. Uh, I needed a break from my office. Uh, His hair was up in the air. His ears were red, but really red. So we, I said, John, you're not very good when you are upset. Should I come back tomorrow for that cup of tea? No, 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 I need you now. Come to my office, Got to the office. The phone was off the hook. And was this fellow, um, Michael Cronafost from Ford, USA. And the conversation was about Michael Andretti, whatever that was. So, okay. So I'm sitting there waiting, you know, And then he puts the phone down. Another call, I think it was Andrea de Cesaris, spent another 15 minutes with him. And then he puts the phone down, unplugs it from the wall. And he said, Roberto, two o'clock this afternoon, our driver, Alessandro Danini, had a helicopter crash. He lost his arm. They are trying to put it back together as we speak. As you can see, a lot of drivers are trying to get the seat because we must run two cars for contract in the next two races. Everybody called after the accident. You called me before the accident and you came here to do me a a job, to work for me. You came here to do me a favor for a cup of tea and some biscuits. Would you like to drive? And I said, oh, I lost words again. <laughs> <laughs> this time, I, I, I wanted to say yes, but I said, shit, I still have a contract. How do I do that? And I said, Joe, I still have a contract. So, oh, Roberto, we'll deal with this. But I need to go and see Briatore because he's, he's killing me to put all those drivers. He's got a list of drivers he wants in the car. I want you in the car. Go and do the mock-up. I'm going to send you a nice lady engineer, Diane, and do the job on the mock-up with her. She will have a cup of tea and biscuits. I'll give you one hour. I can hold Briatore for an hour. And then came back, say, let's do it, John. So he turned the phone around to me, say, call your team. Get yourself released. So I called Walter Broom from Eurogroup, but I called him in Switzerland because the Euro team was Italian, uh, Broom was Swiss. Secretary says, oh Roberto, we've been trying to get a hold of you. You're not in, at home? I said, no, I'm in England. Oh yeah, uh, we had a meeting here this afternoon and I wanted to uh, tell you. I said, well, a meeting without telling me? Oh yeah, it was a bit of a hectic one. Unfortunately, Euro Broome doesn't have money to go to Japan and Australia and we're gonna stop here in the same bloody day, okay? Had I not gone to England to speak to Herbie and he put me on hold until five o'clock, I would not have called those people. I would not have called uh, John Barnard before the accident, of course.
1: And you think he wouldn't have signed you? You think he would have signed De Cesaris, Andretti, one of those other guys? I have
0: no idea. But, uh, you know, I can't uh, pretend to know whatever would have happened. But the feeling I had is he only took me because I came to Benetton to help him. And I had done some straight line work for them while I was Eurogroom. He asked me to do some straight line work at Benetton. I did that for him in the middle of the season as well. So I had a good relationship with John. And he faced Briatori. and he said, no, it's going to have to be rubella I want rubella And that's how I worked. Anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, so what I, happens next? So hang on, hang, Friday, hang, on okay. hang on, I'm hang on, hang on.
1: Sorry. So
0: <laughs> I... Uh, I called the team. They said, okay, we're not racing. I said, oh, can you put that in a piece of paper and send to this fax number? Why are you you there? So 10 minutes later, I received a fax. It was a guy from Eurobroom, UK, that was there in the meeting as well, saying, Roberto, uh, call me. So I call him, said, what are you doing? I said, well, why you want this letter? I said, well, you just, Kick me in the ass. I want to let it off release. Uh, why? Uh, where are you? I think you're um, in Goldman, aren't you? You're in the south of England. So yeah, I'm at Benetton. Oh, you're going to drive for Benetton? I said, well, there's a possibility. Oh, Roberto, I'm coming tomorrow. Are you going to be at mid uh, Saturday at uh, midday around the airport? I said, well, that's time uh, about two hours before my flight back to, in- uh, to-, to Monaco how can you meet me there? I'll bring you the letter. So I come, I did the seat on Saturday morning, went to Heathrow. I picked him up at Heathrow before I returned the car. I took him to his car park, whatever that was. was, There was a little road to Staines behind the airport. It was a two-way road, uh, single lanes. And I'm talking to him. I said, well, and he wouldn't talk about my letter. And I look at him and say, where's my letter? So um, Walter Broome wants uh, $30,000. When he did that, I became a furious guy. I hit the handbrake as I was going on the car. He went, The curb in the middle of that road that goes from the airport to Staines, okay? All the cars start stopping in the back. I said, get the fuck out of my car you asshole. Get the fucking out of my car. And I wanted to hit him. And he, he went in a very British way, you know. I'm not getting out of your car here in the middle of nowhere. I said, you, you, you are. So I went to the back. I got his bag out of the boot, and I threw it on the grass or whatever it was. While he opened the door to get his bag, I took off and <laughs> left him there. Anyway, got to the airport, returned the car, called John and said, John, this has happened. Ah, we expected that, Roberto. Don't worry. They're just bluffing. We're going to take the bluff. We're not going to pay. It's just a bluff. They're trying to use you to get money so they can go to the last two races. But Joan said something to me that I couldn't sleep anymore. Say, said, Roberto. Just as a backup scenario, we might take Martin Brundle up there. Whether he talked to Martin or not, I don't know. But he mentioned that to me and I could not sleep. But he said, Go there because if you are really, if they don't show up, you're going to race. It's okay. So I did all that and I already had the suit. So, um, but I only found out that I was going to drive on Thursday when I called the logistics guy at Eurobroom and he told me the cars were still sitting at Milan Airport. And then so I- they
1: definitely wouldn't make it to Japan in time. Yeah. yeah.
0: And then that scenario there it had to happen. You know, when I drove that car first time in first practice, I braked. And I say, shit, this is too early. I took my foot out of the brake, I <laughs> went on the throttle again, and I braked again. That's how much difference it was to the Euroboon that I was used to. The thing would break like another 50 meters down the road.
1: I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? So you'd, be, you'd been racing for Europe, and I think
0: well, I qualified- did two races only in that year I only qualified two races because yeah. they never wanted to qualify because every time I qualified they, if I passed quali- pre-qualifying which was one hour they had to buy I believe 21 sets of tyres or 13 sets of tyres, they had yeah. to uh, do two engine rebuilds had to only do pre-qualifying they would spend the same engine for four races, four pre-qualifiers, and two sets of tyres each event. So they had oh, but- no intention to pre-qualify. And I, I keep getting the balls a couple of times because I surprised them. But then <laughs> they started to be smart and, and play games with me. Yeah, please don't qualify. What an extraordinary mentality. No, they wouldn't tell me that. Yeah. They wouldn't tell me yeah. that. But they would put an, a race set of tyres instead of qualifiers but, by mistake. Oh,
1: by mistake, an in inverted comment, yeah. yeah.
0: But, Roberto,
1: how much of a mental adjustment did you need to make to get ready for that Japan 90 drive with Benetton? I mean, it all happened so quickly. Um, how tough was it just to get up to speed?
0: It, it wasn't tough, but the surprise of the late breaking. It was something in the first practice. Then you do do a couple of stops, and then you're on the pace again. But then you have to go to the limit of the car, which I did at the end of that afternoon in qualifying. And then I got to the hotel. I was fucked. (laughs) My neck was so sore. And Suzuka's brutal, isn't it? Oh, shit. My arms were destroyed. And I went to the bathtub at the Suzuka Hotel, and I just soaked there. And then I had a massage. I called a friend of mine in Brazil who was a karate expert. I said, what do I do for so quickly get fit? I said, Roberto, open the Bible on Psalm 23 and read that song. I said, oh, come on. I need physical strength, not spiritual strength. No, that's going to help you. So cutting a long story short, I read the psalm all the way through. And the next day, I was even more tired than I was the first day, but I started to be on on top form, except I could not do for too many laps on the road. So I knew the race was going to be tough for me. So, but everybody at Benetton welcomed me so well. I have friends there forever. Jonathan, my chief um, mechanic then, who now it's a, uh, at Red Bull. Jonathan Wheatley. He's one of the top, yeah, he's one of the top guys there. We talk even to this day. They always welcomed me so well. And they helped me throughout the whole thing, you know? They made me comfortable. And that was the main thing that I, I succeed. Are you a
1: deeply religious man? Just looking, just looking at this Psalm 23 and the impact it made on you.
0: Mm. It it was what helped me to uh, believe on this, you know, it it started there.
1: Roberto, before we go to the race, I just, I noticed that you qualified ninth. You were Mm -hmm. what, half a second behind Nelson. Teammate Nelson Piquet, um, how pleased were you with that lap? Can you remember?
0: No, I cannot remember that because I was so bloody tired. <laughs> you know, getting a- being able to do a full lap at top speed, it was something already uh, great for me. Yeah. So, I don't remember. Was, if was, was
1: Nelson helpful in terms of helping you get up to speed? Did he give you any advice, breaking points?
0: Nelson, Nelson always trusted me. Uh, there was no need to coach me or anything, but he was able to give me some good tips. And then he said to me, You know what, Rubello? And I, that was very nice of him to tell me that before. Say, we're going to fuck everybody in this race if you are with me. Say, how are we going to do that, Nelson? Say, I'm going to start with a harder tire than anybody else. I'm going to drive like a woman until the first pit stop. When they make the pit stop, I'm going to get going. And I'm going to surprise everybody with no pit stop. I said, Nelson, if you are doing that, I'm following you. (laughs) whatever you do. So that was very nice of him to be able to tell me that in advance so I could do the same. Whether he wanted me not to do the opposite, not to surprise him, I don't know. But <laughs> he was very nice, in my opinion, to tell me that. Okay? So we started the race new, knowing that we had to drive slowly to save the tires and get going in the second stint. Why everybody did a pit stop. Of course, Senna pushed Prost off the race in the first turn. And then the next lap, Gerhard Berger spins on the water left from those cars, I believe Prost's car. Uh, We got out, we got through okay, Nigel, Nelson, myself. And I had a good start, which I passed to Williams. So it was Nigel, Nelson, myself and a couple of Williams behind. How did it feel when you looked
1: at your pit board and saw P3? How did you feel?
0: Uh, That was a great sensation. And then it started to get tough because Nigel stopped and he broke the drive shaft on the way out. Although You know, he always tried to drive out of the pits as fast as he could. (laughs) And it was Nelson and myself on the lead. And now Nelson got going and I couldn't keep up with him. He just got going, and I started to get tired. And I started to breathe hard to follow him. I followed him for maybe three or four laps, and then I had to let him go slowly. And then I was getting tired, and then I couldn't turn the steering wheel, and then I was breathing deep, and then I made a mistake in the corner. Ooh, almost. So the next one, I almost made a mistake again. And I say shoot. And then the song came to my mind. The 23. And you know what the, what the marathons get when they run for so long? You get that extra power on you, which is nothing extra than nothing more than um, endorphin into your system. I got that after two corners, I almost spinning. Now I'm back in full action again. So I caught Nelson a little bit and I said, well, I'm going to set for second. And that's how it was all the way through. And then when the race finished, I could hardly stand up on my feet. (laughs)
1: <laughs> he's just got the last few corners to go he goes into the chicane into the last corner now he can almost see the checkered flag a brilliant second place for Roberto Moreno in his
0: first real what Broad a day team. what
1: an amazing day and and just the two of you up there on the podium together
0: further, further amazing was Ken Tiro coming to me and say Roberto I watched you in Birmingham in 1987 when you amazed me by starting from the pits in the full 3000 grid, and you went through the field to finish second. You've amazed me in that race. Now you've amazed me again. and. I made a bet with my wife that you would not finish the race because I knew you were not fit because you never done a Grand Prix this year. And drivers in those days, they were not as fit as the drivers now. So that was amazing to hear that from Ken, too. Because Ken is like Ron Toranac, you know? He's on that field of engineers that I always respect or, or Formula One people,
1: and then can you remember what happened after what did Flavio Briatore say to you
0: Uh, he was speechless because he was just uh, Flavio was just uh, enjoying the moment you know he was happy that Benetton finished first and second you know to this date it's the last first and second Brazilian podium since uh, it's the last one Yeah, it hasn't been uh, first and second position podium for Brazilian drivers. Since then, yeah, yeah. So he was enjoying the moment. Um, Barnard was so happy. <laughs> <laughs> my engine, my young engineer Andy was really happy, and we enjoying the moment.
1: Did Did you, so, you all head off to the log cabin for some no,
0: karaoke? I, I, well, no, no, no we did not. I guess I just went to the hotel. And fell asleep because <laughs> I was so bloody naked. Yeah. When did you get
1: news of the deal for 1991?
0: A couple of weeks after Australia, I believe, because uh, of course they say Roberto, we're going to confirm you for Australia if it's okay with you. So yeah, no problem. <laughs> Twist
1: my arm. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then, um, and then uh, I think a couple of weeks after the the. The Australian Grand Prix. They called me. Everybody at Benetton, the people that did the contract and things, they all cheering for me. They were really over the moon.
1: And how did it feel, have... Roberto, for you to go into that winter with a proper front-running Formula One contract in your back pocket? The most, the most relaxing winter of your career, I guess.
0: In, indeed, indeed. Yeah, it's it's a. It, it was a great feeling knowing that I had a job to do full-time, like I had in 1984 with Ron Toranaki in Formula 2, like I had in 1980 with Van Diemen. So there were no many times in my career that I started the season with a full-time contract for the follow- for that year.
1: What, um, what was Ayrton Senna's reaction to you becoming a player at the front of Formula 1? Did you have much of a relationship with him?
0: No. Unfortunately, Ayrton played uh, a game with me back in the go-kart days that um, I never had much respect for him as a person. So I never got close to Ayrton. I went to a race in Brazil, which was a fun race, with a Brazilian go-kart. It was just before I went to England in 1978. It was an inauguration of a circuit. And he brought in the World Championship go-kart from DAP, D-A-P, I think. And he was two seconds quicker than everybody else. So he had another another go-kart. Anyway, he qualifies on pole. Second guy is one-tenth quicker than me in third place. So... I'm starting the race behind Da Silva. And suddenly, I was a good starter. I passed him before the first clean pass, before the first turn. And I did a couple of turns in front of him. He was furious. Furious. He never expected that coming. Passed me as he would with a two-second quicker go-car. Different tires, different engine, a whole lot took off. So I'm fighting for second with third guy, and I suddenly see coming closer to the silver. And then when I got behind his ass, he put his hand on the carburetor to make smoke out of the exhaust, and he smoked my face and took off again, just to take a piss of me. When I come from in Brazilia. If you make a good move in somebody, you don't try to disrespect that person. You respect that person. You try to do it back to him eventually. And he smoked my face three times and took off three times. So I never had much respect for him as a person. So I never got close to him.
1: And did he also see you as a PK man?
0: I don't know. I don't know. I don't care. So let's look at
1: 1991 now. Um, What were your goals going into that season with Benetton?
0: I went and got fit like nobody. I ate so well. Every focus was to get the best out of me. And of course, that car, unfortunately, had some gearbox issues which it was only fixed oh, yeah, halfway in the season, start to get fixed before, I believe, Canada. So we had some issues there, but the, the engineers worked hard and they fixed all that. We did have a good finish in Monaco, but it was just a survival finish.
1: Fourth in Monaco. Um,
0: yeah. I, yeah, so I played very safe there. Uh, and I was able to finish, knowing that it was so careful had to be so careful with the gearbox. But then they fixed it, and the thing was good. Of course, the prairie tires were a little of a handicap at some points, but at some points they had some highs. I remember in Canada, and I'm very good with ninety degree corners, which Canada is full of them, and I was able to play some shock adjustments by then, which were very good. And even Nelson said, well, what is he using? Let me have some of that. And uh, he took my settings for the shocks for, for that race. But my car broke the, the, broke something on the suspension. I stopped and nobody talked about it. I had a chance to finish another podium there for sure. Mm. So that year was good. And then, um, you know, the rest is history. But remember, I was 32 years old. And I was learning to drive in the top team in Formula One at a very old age. So that was my handicap. But I made it. I got there. I had so many downs and ups. and, And then the little ups I had, I
1: had so much pleasure out of it. Mm. So Spa, Belgian Grand Prix. Yes. Um, Actually one of your best races of the season. Fastest lap, you Mm -hmm. finished fourth. Mm -hmm. Um, Michael Schumacher makes his debut that weekend for Jordan. At what point did you become aware that he was being linked to your seat at Benetton for the next race?
0: Oh, uh, not until Tuesday before the Monza Grand Prix. How did you... F- Briatore makes me a call saying, I want to meet you in... Um, in um, I'm going to come to Nice to meet you at the airport. So I thought he was going to me- offer me something. I don't know. <laughs> the following year.
1: <laughs> really? you You actually thought yeah. the meeting was about
0: 1992? Yeah. 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 Because I was making good progress, you know, almost ready to get going. So, what did Flavio say? Because Briatore met me at the airport, he would not look in my eyes. It was the most amazing thing I ever experienced. A guy sitting across the table from me in the coffee shop, same same coffee shop, by the way, that AGS turned me down for that season in 89, in 88, sorry. Stop going back to
1: that that coffee shop,
0: Roberto. (laughs) I did. It doesn't (laughs) exist anymore. Anyway, he was looking down, talking to me across the table, looking down, ashamed of looking in my face. It was the most amazing experience. And then I said, uh, oh, we're going to have to put another driver in the car. I want you to, to stay at home. Say you have a bit of an issue and we're going to replace you. We're going to pay you. And that's it. It's okay. How do you talked to Eddie Jordan about this? Can I race in Eddie Jordan's car? Oh, no, we're having a problem with Eddie. And the same way as he... Was looking down. He continued looking down, and then I said, "Okay, I'll go and talk to Eddie if he agrees to me to drive for me to drive for him. I will accept, but only that." And then he said, "Oh, how about Hang on." And then he handed me two pieces of paper, and in those two pieces of papers, said things that I'm not allowed to say here, but it wasn't very nice. And it was regarding how they can get out of a contract. So I say, I went home, called Eddie. And Eddie went, no fucking way. There's a lot of money. I found that driver. There's a lot of money behind. I did a lot of work on that. I want that driver for me. No way. If I accept you now, Roberto, I lose that. I'm going to fight to the end. That was his words. So you can, you can judge what happened there.
1: Roberto, you had a a, a contract for the year and for you Mm. to get out of that car, you wanted full payment from the team and a drive with Eddie Jordan.
0: No, I didn't want anything. I wanted to race. I wanted to race. Had, had him negotiated with Eddie Jordan or them, negotiated with Eddie Jordan for me to drive for Eddie. I would be fine. I'd love to work with uh, Gary Anderson. It would be no problem. But he had to handle those two pieces of paper to me and not look in my face. Had he been a true man with me, I would play the game. He did not respect me as... Uh, what I've done for him. I've saved their ass in, in Japan. So I just want their that respect. That's all. So because uh, suddenly I have no drive. So I have nothing left than going to court. So I got a good lawyer, went to Monza. I got an injunction on them, and we talked after that, and we negotiated a deal. And that's that was everybody was happy after that. Not me, but everybody was happy. How helpful was
1: Bernie Ecclestone in all this?
0: Very much so. Bernie was a great person. He was the middleman that I needed at that time. At three o'clock in the morning, I got this phone call, regardless Bernie. <laughs> and then he explained a couple of things to me I said Bernie if you are telling me that I have to respect you know I always respect you you were the greatest person in Formula 1 for me and um, he always uh, always very fair he was and um, he was the middleman for me there at the end and um, it worked out well
1: Bernie wanted Michael Schumacher in a Benetton
0: but he also wanted me uh to get out of it I, I i believe that's true what he's saying but he also wanted me to get out in a nice way okay and you- he wasn't like he wasn't like the other people that just wouldn't even look in my face yep.
1: so you end up in the jordan um which by all accounts was a good car in in 91 wasn't it um Gasho had set fastest lap in Hungary and how how did you find it when you drove it for the first time at Monza?
0: Well, making a seat at five o'clock in the morning is not very nice. (laughs) You don't get much sleep when you go to bed at three after negotiating your deal and then the phone call rings. Oh, Roberto, it's Eddie. I say, Eddie, I thought you didn't want to do a deal with me. (laughs) 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 Oh, Roberto, if you give me $60,000, you can drive my car. I put the phone down on him. I just put the phone down on him. And he calls me again. Oh, Roberto. I said, Eddie, no money. Oh, Roberto, what about $50,000? I said, put the phone down again. And then on the third time, he calls me, don't put the phone down again. I said, well, stop talking about money. It's only one way I'll drive your car. I'm not spending my money on you. Unfortunately, it's too late, Eddie. I can't do well. It's, it's three o'clock in the morning. We've got to make a seat. Oh, okay, yeah, but I need, I need some sponsorship. I said, well, I've just been left in the dark with the money I would have made, you know, and I lost. I said, well, Eddie, that's not my problem. I tried to negotiate with you before all this happened, you know, and you didn't want to know. You know, I I, I respect you a lot, but, you know, what can I do? I just want to go to sleep now and cry on my pillow at the moment. That's all I want to do. No, 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 you're driving for me. I said, well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you drive for me. If you find money, you pay me one day. I said, if we have that understanding but it would have to be from my sponsor not from my own money do we have that understanding So yeah A couple more
1: things if i may roberto what
0: uh, just
1: 1992 you end up in andrea moda which is a sort of sort of reborn <laughs> colony is that a way of uh, describing it with I never
0: knew it was Coloni, to be honest with you. I always thought it was Syntac. Oh, really? Well, tell
1: us how tough it was that year to go from a Benetton where you're at the
0: front to, to an Andrea Moda. I'm sitting at home in Brazil counting my money. I got this phone call from a very good friend of mine that does all the apartments in Monte Carlo. He says to me, Roberto, Alex Coffee doesn't want to race in Brazil. There is this team that doesn't have much of a car, but they need the driver to show up. I said, "Well, how much are they willing to pay?" Said, "I don't know, Roberto. How much you want?" I said, "Well, if he has fifteen thousand dollars cash on my arrival, I'll be that driver." But he has to pay me cash on arrival. Otherwise, I leave. So he arranged that with uh, whoever it was. I think it was Andrea Modis himself. I got to to Sao Paulo. I seen these kind pieces everywhere. And they were really trying hard. The mechanics did a, a fantastic job in putting those together. Great people. And that's what is good about racing, you know, the mechanics and everybody in the team, they push hard. And they don't care to sleep late. They don't care not to sleep. They will do anything for what they do. So I slept in the engine box while they were finishing the car to wait to make the seat. I think I made the seat around 4 o'clock in the morning again. And all they had to do is, I think FIA say they had to do at least three laps so they wouldn't get kicked out. So I had to find a way to do three laps in that car for $15,000. So we did that. And we saved them. And then the next step was, okay, let's put the cars together for the next race. I think it was Barcelona, maybe, something like that. And then I was going to go out. The engineer comes to me and said, Roberto, would you please go out and stop at the back straight? I said, what are you talking about? I think it was Barcelona, if I'm not wrong. I said, why? Well, let me show you something. And he shows me a crack on the rear wing uh, side plates, uh, uh, main plates, about two inches long. Say, if you use this rear wing, it's going to fly off. So please don't. I said, well, can you put another wing? Say, we don't have another. And we need to just need to show like we're doing a job, and then eventually we're going to get this fixed. So, okay. So I did a full lap, come back in. <laughs> I wouldn't stop. <laughs> and I came out of the car, and that was it. And then the mechanics were very good friends. And as you say, now I remember they were from Colony. And I say to them, I say, well, you know, we have a car that might not be a bad car. Why don't we just try to fix this car as best as we can and get one car going and let's try to qualify this car. I think it would be a great achievement for us. And we worked on that. Imola, we already ready to qualify the car, but we had a bearing seized in the front in pre-qualifying or qualifying, whatever it was, but I think it was pre-qualifying. So we fixed that and then there was Monaco. So I had a very good friend of mine, um, Hayden uh, Burview, I think his name, Um, he was engineer. And I said, well, let's go to a very tight circuit and make sure this car turns and Monaco will be okay. So we went to this place in south of Italy. I forgot the name, but it was first, second, third gear only in the Formula One car. It was near um, south of Rome somewhere. Not Valle Lunga, no. No, 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 that was was north of, um, it was south. It was a very small place. I remember the owner of the circuit took us for lunch because we went there, you know. But it was first, second, third, but I was able to get the car raked, free the diff. We did all that there, and the car was good enough for Monaco. In pre-qualifying, we did quite well. And again, again, Tom, the most pleasure I had in racing is driving to the pit, say Monaco, and every every mechanic, every engineer on that pit clapping for me. That sensation, it will stay with me forever. It's unbelievable pleasure. And I pre-qualified. And then come the Qualifying, I knew I had to save the engine and the tires and everything else in the car. So I waited until the very last moment. And we only really pushed hard in the second qualifying. In my first lap in first qualifying, it was good enough for top 15. People don't realize that. But my first lap, I mean, the, on the beginning of the day, we were one of the first ones to go out. It was good enough for top 15. And that lap kept me on the grid because I never done another lap. People don't realize that. Had I been able to go out in the last 5, 10 minutes of the last qualifying session, I would not have qualified last a moment ago. And people don't realize that yet. They do now. So it's a fantastic opportunity that I had. So I might not have been a world champion in Formula One, but I beat four of the world champions in Formula Atlantics.
1: Roberto, it's been so much fun talking to you. (laughs) Um, When you reflect on it all now, you weren't a world champion but you had, as you say, you beat world champions and, and you had your, your days in the sun, didn't you? Just, just if you were to sum it all up, how would you? What would you say? Um,
0: I left Brazil. My mother said to me, Roberto, I'm going to leave your room the way it is. If things don't work out, you just come back home. That was my drive. to never fail my mother. Had I come back home, I would fail my mother. That was my drive. My mother supporting me if things went wrong to go back home. So I left Brazil with no money. Some friends helped me to make half a season, which I made a full season out of the same money. That was good enough for half a season. I got the best driving Formula Ford from Ralph Furman, which is in my opinion, one of the best ever motor racing people in the world. Ralph Furman. he loves racing. He loves beating, he loves developing. And I drove for him. We won 15 out of 30 races. I had to become a, uh, I don't like to say that, but I had to find jobs just to stay alive. And those jobs were in racing.
1: But that's the thing, Roberto. When I look at your career and I listen to you now, you're a man who has seized every opportunity that you were given.
0: I guess, yeah. Um, yeah, um, The good thing with me is when I drove the car and there was a good car, people would go, wow, except Formula One. Because it, the opportunity did not come the right way until I was too old. Had I got an opportunity in 1985 when Tolman wanted me to take the seat when they had no tires... I would have, that would have been my best season. I was awesome at that position, at that time, after doing a season in Formula 2. I was top quality at that point. I got to Formula oh, 1 too old when I really got my good break. Yeah. Anyway, so what I see is a person that left Brazil to make a career found a way somehow to God helping me opening doors and friends sticking their hand out for me to make true. And I still make a living out of racing to this date. I coach drivers now and I still enjoy it. Oh, Roberto, look,
1: Roberto, thank you very much for your time. It's been a joy speaking to you. I really appreciate it.
0: I I, I love the opportunity to be able to speak to probably some friends that I haven't seen for many years uh, from Formula One or from Europe. I really appreciate this opportunity. And anytime you want to talk again, there's a lot more to say.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Roberto. Great stuff. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Cheers.
1: Wasn't that incredible? So many great stories and so much insight into the way in which Formula One operated at the time. If I were to pick two highlights, I'd start with his description of Suzuka 1990. From the way in which he turned up at the team's Guildford technical office to do tech boss John Barnard a favor, to seeking inspiration from Psalm 23 as he sought to overcome a lack of fitness. It was an incredible tale. And then there was the whole testing experience with Ferrari. Aside from the magic of the Scuderia, there was the whole development of that semi-automatic gearbox. I remember it being a hugely exciting innovation at the time, and Roberto's reflections are fascinating. Thank you, Roberto, for your time. It was great to chat. And I hope to see you either in San Paulo at the end of the year or at the Miami Grand Prix in 2022. And before we move on, as ever, please remember to send in any stories or chance meetings or thoughts that you have on Roberto. He's one of a kind. And remember, I'll read out the best ones next week. Send them to me at tomclarksonf one or use the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Yuki Tsunoda after last week's show. Judging by the feedback we received, he has a lot of fans all around the world. Yoshi Uchiyama got in touch to say this. Yuki's hometown is my home's neighbor, so I have strong sympathy for him. Actually, he is the same age as my daughter as well. I started following him last year in Formula 2, and he has a talent of speed and to overtake. And I'm looking forward to him being the first F1 winner from Japan. Oh, I hope you're right, Yoshi. Wouldn't that be great? And I know I'm getting ahead of myself here. But just imagine if he won the Japanese Grand Prix at Suzuka one day. Wouldn't that be fantastic? And Nasato starts her message by quoting Yuki. She says, I like bad words. That was the Yuki quote from last week. And her reply is, uh, this is a mood. Me too, Yuki. Me too. Well, <laughs> and I hope your support of Yuki hasn't made you all potty-mouthed. That's not the effect we want this show to have on people. And Rex Banner got in touch with this. As an admirer of Japanese culture and cuisine, it was great to hear F1's youngest talent express himself with some of the same passion and vocabulary that we hear on the radio. Here's hoping that he does eventually make it onto the top step sometime soon. Ganbati Yuki-san well thanks Rex and there are a lot of people listening to this who will agree with you Ganbati indeed Yuki-san Ganbati well that's it for this week I hope you enjoyed hearing from Roberto and remember to send in your thoughts and stories to me and as ever I'll be back next week with another great guest from the world of Formula 1 so see you then Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. until next time keep it flat out